Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the courtly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yes, we have used that one before (laughs) because we used it the last time we did today's story, so why come up with something new? My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally courtly three-person discussion panel, whatever that means, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast the host of one of our sister podcasts on the Direction Point Network, the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast, and the host of the Video Junkyard podcast, Eric Olbranson. Hello, Eric. Hello. Good to have you back, even for this (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's always always a pleasure, even if we do have to talk about this one again. So. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, t-shirts and mugs with our logos on them, just like giving to BBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those... You've put them in a pavilion on your country estate and guard them (laughs) with an android duplicate of someone very dangerous indeed. I'm sorry, I came up with that on the spot and it was just awful. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air because I don't remember what we said last time. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, (laughs) yes, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Millett-Dwelling. Thank you all. Yes, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. Once again, as you may have already noticed, we're backtracking a little bit to cover a new edition of a novelization we've already covered, The Androids of Tara. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Androids of Tara, adapted by David Fisher from the script that aired from 11-25-78 to 12-16-78, published by BBC Books in July 2022. As of this recording in August of 2022, this title is imprint and available as an unabridged audiobook, 192 pages. Now, as with The Stones of Blood, we previously did this book in episode 106, for which Eric was with us too, which Mm -hmm. is only part of the reason why he's back again. (laughs) It's been long overdue. 
but we covered what was for the longest time the only official version, which is the Target book written by Terrence Dix. David Fisher, who died in 2018, notoriously disliked Dix's novelizations for a number of reasons, but while he had very specific problems with Dix's novelization of The Stones of Blood, it's not clear exactly what issues he had with Androids of Tara. Whatever they were, he still wrote his own audio-only version of it, which was made available from Audible in 2012, and this one was read by John Leeson. BBC Books decided this year to publish both of the audiobooks as novels, which is where we get the current one from. There is still no audiobook of the Terence Dix version of this book, but the Audible version of this one is still available. Unfortunately, as of this recording, we still don't have the printed version, which has been pushed back to ship in September for some reason. In fact, I just got another email saying, oh, it's been pushed back a little further. And I don't know why. But the Kindle version, luckily, is still available. And that's what we're discussing today, because if the Kindle version had not been available, we would have nothing to discuss. (laughs) Unfortunately, obviously, since it's Kindle, there is no back cover for us yet but we can do a dramatic reading of the description we have for the book on Goodreads, which I assume is going to be the cover text for it. So since I tend to duck out of these, I'll go ahead and read this one aloud for us. I know, right? It's been a long time. The Doctor and Romana's search for the fourth segment of the all-powerful Key to Time leads them to the planet Tara, where courtly intrigue and romantic pageantry employ the most sophisticated technology. Within hours of arriving, Romana is mistaken for a powerful princess and the doctor forced to dally with robotic royalty. Boy, that's hard to say. And both are quickly embroiled in the scheming ambitions of the wicked Count Grendel. Finding the segment of the key is easy enough, but escaping with it in one piece will prove an altogether more colorful affair. That's a weird one. Robotic royalty. (laughs) powerful princess it's not like she's she-ra it's just weird <laughs> yeah it's like they try to make them um hard to read at times i feel like maybe yeah. that's just my stumbling over stuff but it's uh yeah <laughs> yes your your frustration about the shipping dates this happened to me when trying to follow the time lord victorious um <gasps> oh, series God. or whatever it was called a while back the multi the multimedia series that they did oh. and yeah pre-ordered all those books and stuff original ship date came and went and they just kept delaying and kept delaying and it's like hey everyone in the world you know who's reading these books has already read them and us here in the states still are waiting on our amazon orders so finally i canceled all my amazon orders and ended up going to uh, i think book depository and was able to get them from a uk bookstore through that but <sighs> Jeez. Yeah, it's a pain. <laughs> like it's oh, yeah. and it sounds like it's the same things going on with all these Target books. Asad Keski, who I'm uh, podcast with on the Police Box podcast, it has all of these uh, new Target books ordered, and he said he's having the same issue. It's they're just not coming. So yeah, and well, but. at least with Time Lord Victorious, I could kind of understand it, if only because that was such a far-reaching project and there were so many moving parts. But mm-hmm. it sounds like the UK basically did get all of them long before we did whereas these there's just no real excuse for it i think but right what was your first impression when you found out that we were having to do this again i didn't actually realize that this was the one i knew there were some that uh that they were slowly adapting some of the rewrites that they did for the audiobooks but i didn't realize this one's one of the new pack of target novels that were coming out so i was actually kind of optimistic thinking well (laughs) they can't get a whole lot worse than you know the terrence dicks version of this story and you know it's it's well we'll get into arguing whether or not that's the case here but yeah i think it might prove a few things about androids of tara maybe just not being the best doctor who story so although i as i said last time we talked about it i've always found it kind of enjoyable on tv maybe this just doesn't make a good book i don't know Mm -hmm. just that seems to be a lot of it Dalton, when you found out we were doing this one again, what did you think? I kept confusing it with another story. Really? Which actually gets name dropped in or or at least alluded to in this story, The Robots of Death. Yes. So my brain oh, okay. my, yep. my brain kept thinking about Robots of Death, but then of course immediately once I started reading, I was like, "All oh, right, it's this one." <laughs> <laughs> 
The moment you see Count Grendel on the page, oh gosh. Oh god, not this one again. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I feel like I remember liking Robots of Death more than Hands of Tara, but yeah. not being too impressed yeah. by either of them. So, yeah. Yeah, and with Robots of Death, that makes sense because for some God-only-knows reason, that is one of the shortest novelizations that Terrence Dickel ever did. Mm-hmm. And yet it's Mm. one of those stories that has an outsized reputation in Doctor Who history because it's really quite good. So it should have had a better novelization Mm -hmm. than it does. Yeah, and so since we just did Stones of Blood that David Fisher did the novelization for, I was expecting this one to be, again, like a, a vast improvement because we did feel like Stones of Blood was such a better novelization than the Terrence Dicks version. But as I'm sure we'll talk about, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler alert to all of our listeners. Yeah. We weren't as impressed with this as we were hoping to be. But, um... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. Speaking of robots of death again, real quick. Chris Boucher's still with us, isn't he? Wouldn't it be great if he could I... rewrite his, the novelization of that and we yeah. could get a better version? I mean, now's the time, right? They're doing all these new... Uh target books he could get a yeah take a crack at it and i'm sure it would uh i've not read the the terrence dix one but i you said the the low page count i can't imagine it does it justice so it doesn't and i think a lot of that is because on screen you know so much of the story is creepy robots walking around with that lovely music cue by um uh, I almost said Roy Skelton. That's one of the Dalek voices. But anyway, the that's a lot of it. You can tell that we're kind of avoiding talking Avoid. about this. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Robots of Death. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, they yeah. both got robots. So. Well, Tony, you, you and I were talking a little before we started, and I basically said, you know, I think the story itself isn't that strong. So even if the writing is better, which it is, the story mm-hmm. still drags it down. Yeah. 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 It's it's still Prisoner of Zenda. Yeah, I think it really starts to show its cracks here. And just, it, it becomes very obvious, even with the better writing and a lot of the background that Fisher gives the characters and such, that it really doesn't help a lot. And that's pretty telling of mm-hmm. the, the quality of the story, I think. Yeah. I guess we should take a crack at that, because we talked about the, the original story a bit last time. I think we should probably talk about what it is about the original story that makes it kind of a lesser story and why it may be so difficult to translate to the page because this is something of an improvement on the Dick's version, but it's not nearly the night and day difference that the Stones of Blood is between the Dick's version and the Fisher version. Okay, yeah. What is it about the story that comes off as weaker compared to the stories around it you know and i i still to to this date have not gone back and watched it since last time we talked about the dicks novel but from memory i found it to be a generally interesting or generally fine episode of doctor who on tv kind of forgettable at the end of the day but not offensively bad or anything that you know it was fine you got you got through it i mean besides the creature at the beginning though they call it the rhino bear or whatever oh yeah Mm -hmm. the terror beast yeah Yeah, the rhino bear in this version but yeah so generally i had a a good impression of it a good if you know not kind of like have to remind myself which one that is but then then reading the terrence dix book was kind of a shock like i i I remember discussing like is it really terrence dix prose or the way that he approached the story that kind of killed it for me or was it is this just not as fun of a story as i remember it being so and uh, I think I've answered that and that I don't I'm not sure it's really as fun of a story as I remember it being. <laughs> it's got a neat like a neat and interesting setting. But I think that the my interest in it story wise, it starts and ends there. Like there are, the pieces just don't really go back together. And he starts this book with like a big not big. It's like two or three page prologue giving us the history of Tara, which I appreciated. But at the same time, it was the first instance of something that's going to happen throughout this book uh, that David Fisher does repeatedly and gives us lots and lots of details about stuff that doesn't end up being that important to the actual story. (laughs) So it is just kind of filling in, you know, kind of giving us lots of fluff and stuff to chew on, which does ultimately make it a little bit more easy, interesting to read, but 
ultimately it doesn't help the narrative. Yeah, and that is something that he does in Stones of Blood, though almost everything in that one does come back into the story somehow, whereas here it's more set dressing. In much the same way, come to think of it, Dalton, you probably agree with me on this one, that his novelization of Creature from the Pit did. Because there's lots of background stuff in that story, too, about Arato and about Chloris and such. Yeah. Even to the point of having those damn footnotes. (sighs) And, yeah, in there, it's just extra. And that seems to be what a lot of this is, even though some of it is, some of it's extremely amusing. Yeah. I think what my issue with it is, is that no matter how interesting the history, the background of anything is, I don't find any of the characters likable. <laughs> I, I, and I, and yeah. I think part of it is like the whole deal with Tara is that basically it's a society of nobility and they're all just kind of got their noses up in the air and think they're better than everyone else. Even the whole bit about them having assassinations just after a coronation is kind of <laughs> supposed to make us feel something, I guess, for their own plight. But ultimately, it's like, they're just all assholes. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's attempting to send up the aristocracy and just kind of make a farcical, like how, how ridiculous this is. Like they're, they're totally out of touch with, you know, the people or peasantry on Tara. Mm-hmm. They're just these kind of fickle having their little like household rivalries and all the like murder plots. And it, it, I think he's, it's, it's a bit of a send up of that aristocracy or that, that, you know, upper class in, in general. But yeah, I think it it kind of fails to be funny in this point. Like it's maybe not a, a ridiculous enough to to get humor out of it, um, and and yeah, it just makes everybody like highly unlikable. Even people that probably are supposed to be likable, because he he's definitely given Prince Rainer in this a even less likable turn than I remember him being on TV or in the Dix novels. Yes, and in fact, that I'm glad you brought that up, Eric, because there is something that he is trying to inject into this book that was not in the original version. And it's this whole idea that the aristocracy on Tara seems to think of the peasantry as literal lesser beings and unable to actually feel the same sorts of emotions because we get that a couple of times with Lamia's relationship with Grendel. Mm -hmm. This idea that both Grendel and Reynard, for some reason, think that she's incapable of being in love with Grendel because she's a peasant and they don't understand these finer emotions. And Romana says, um, they understand them a lot better than you think they do. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and there's this weird shift later where Reynard actually seems to have changed his mind about it, but there's no intervening happening that would explain why he's had that change. So it mm-hmm. gets lost in there. Yeah. In a way, it almost feels like too that there's this this idea that love and emotion and that kind of closeness is a weakness because you know we're told pretty much that there are people that just run through spouses which i guess is supposed to maybe remind us of henry the eighth a little bit (laughs) but just this kind of idea that even the person that you are married to is disposable. Yes, that you can just wall her up in a wall when you get tired of her, which is what what yeah. Grendel's family apparently does all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? It was a great grandmother, a great aunt of his, or something that they he tells a story in there about going through husbands or whatever or partners like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, like you said, it's supposed to make us think that it's farcical and it's kind of like putting it to them. But in a way, it's like it's not going quite far enough. Mm-hmm. And so then it just kind of lays it bare as this kind of like really sad society. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And, and it's just like, yeah. It kind of leaves us at a place where at the end of this thing, like the way everything turns out, doesn't seem like it probably changed a whole lot about that. So he took all that time to set up this dichotomy and class struggle and all this uh, really kind of almost disturbing depiction of this aristocracy. And then tells us a story that doesn't really change anything and including, Mm -hmm. 
because he's made Reinhardt, you know, such a, a less likable character even than we got in the show, I think at the end, crowning him then seems like, well, we really didn't change anything. We just have this... <laughs> <laughs> this yeah one of the aristocratic houses and on with the th- way things have been and the fact that whenever grendel escapes the doctor even thinks nothing that's going to happen after we leave here is any of our interest you know whatever <laughs> yeah yeah so we just went through all this trouble to make sure this guy didn't get killed to make sure that this marriage didn't happen and dude escaped and in a month or two whenever he's raised some troops it's all just going to play out again yeah it ends up being extremely low stakes and i think on screen the reason why it's possible to watch the episode and enjoy it is one it comes off more as a romp Mm -hmm. it really is Mm -hmm. just a bit of fluff even the key to time itself is just an afterthought it's like oh we found the segment within the first 10 minutes so that's not the issue the issue is all of this stuff and romana being damsel in distress and all of this and you barely notice how light and fluffy and like a confectionery it is until you're stuffed on it and you're like oh (laughs) i could have had a v8 you know something a little more interesting (laughs) and a little more fulfilling yeah it's very low stakes and and his adding all of these extra details i think unfortunately backfires on him because it you could tell he put a lot of thought into this and world building and such but backfires for that very reason is like once you give all these details then it just kind of makes the narrative seem like nothing happens so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah and to his credit he's drawing a lot of parallels to specific eras of earth history like the Italian aristocracy to the Borgias, for instance. As a matter of fact, he mm-hmm. even names one of Grendel's ancestors Lucretia. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, they are doing exactly the sorts of things that you would imagine Italian aristocracy from that time to be doing to their wives and to each other and treating the peasants in a horrible way. But we got that slightly better when we actually did go to the Renaissance in Italy when we had the Mask of Mandragora, and that was an even worse written book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that was. So if it's that's like, possible, yeah. It's a, yeah, so why uh, even bother trying to do this sort of pastiche? I, I kind of like those asides, but it feels like the book has been written to have those asides rather than yeah. actually tell the story that's being told. It, it mm-hmm. kind of feels like, for lack of a better word, I don't know how much crossover understanding there is, but like the show Family Guy storytelling, like where they just kind of cut away and do like this totally <laughs> yes. unrelated little gag oh, and yeah. then come back to the story. Yeah, it's it, it kind of seems like that. Like it's interesting enough, like the stuff they're telling us, but what does it actually have to do with the story? Nothing. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I'm through listening to you. Fine. Think what you want, aging supermodel Carol Alt. Carol, come in here. They're saying your name on the family man. What? Huh? What? Huh? What? I forget. And a lot like those cutaways, some of them go on quite a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is fine. They're certainly entertaining enough. But yeah, they're almost more of a distraction from the story than something that actually adds to it towards the end of the book there's a a little passage that pretty much explains how grendel kidnapped strella and it goes from him talking to her in the dungeon to explaining them playing as kids together and him tying her up Mm. and tying up her nursemaid and then it (laughs) immediately flashes back to the current time but it's all i had to read through it like three times to understand what was happening just with the back and forth yeah putting that there which like you said reading the aside was interesting you know seeing this backstory is interesting but ultimately it doesn't really add much to the story it basically tells us grendel's a kid that used to kill animals (laughs) (laughs) pretty pretty much you know he was destined to grow up to be a serial killer yeah (laughs) but we may have already guessed this about him in the first place (laughs) right because we've had like three three other instances where we're told his family told him to be dastardly since he was a kid 
okay, yeah, we get it. He's a he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy, and it's in his blood. <laughs> yeah, I I like that you brought up that specific bit because that aside, when when they tell the story, the background of Strella and Grendel as kids, or when he was courting her, they were whatever they were meant to be married or paired or whatever. I think that was actually one of the more interesting asides or backstories. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they waited until so late in the novel, like I feel like that belonged when we're first introducing Strella, you know, somewhere up in the beginning of the book so we can get a, a sense of who these people are rather than kind of sticking it at the end in a really odd place after mm-hmm. we've already seen these characters interact many times uh, together. Yeah. yeah, it's a bad structure. It's a really bad structure to have, well, it's fine to have one flashback, but then to follow it with yet another flashback. is not very good structuring of a narrative and that's probably why you don't get any of that story in the televised version because there'd be no place to put it Mm -hmm. yeah what else do we dislike about this version because we should talk about what's good about it and we will but what did we dislike or think was odd i think i mainly made most of my major gripes and that's that i appreciate what david fisher has done here and the writing is certainly competent and i appreciate what he's trying to do but i just think it felt like the the story kind of falls under the weight of all of this stuff and it just doesn't support it my biggest gripe that i can think of that that we haven't gotten to is his a fairly diminished roles that our main cast gets to play here the doctor mm-hmm. and romana and because he's developed tara the aristocracy and given us all this backstory of all of these other characters the doctor and romana and even even k9 don't seem to get much to do here mm-hmm. which may have been true before because the story is like what you said kind of just like light and fluffy popcorn kind of entertainment this kind of points out that they don't have anything to do here and the doctor is actually not real likable uh which happens with the fourth doctor sometimes i don't know why they chose to write him that way i don't think it's any fault of tom baker's because he's super likable most of the time but mm-hmm. every once in a while he gets written as kind of a you know not in the normal way that he that the the fourth doctor is very alien but but he gets almost written detached from the human element of things and he can be kind of cold and odd and that doesn't seem like the same fourth doctor that we see most of the time and i think you get that a little bit here out of fisher's take on the fourth doctor my primary example is the scene where he's quote-unquote negotiating his fee for fixing the androids <laughs> right. fisher seems to take this very seriously here unless i'm misreading it like unless the joke just didn't go through and on screen and even in the dicks novel it reads like the doctor's not being serious but here it's kind of like oh is the doctor really trying to make some money here <laughs> like I don't, I don't understand this he has no value for that any other time so yeah that is one of the things that fisher seems to be not capturing on the page is and this goes back to what i was saying about the other good thing about the televised version and that's performances mm-hmm. that this weak little story gets buoyed along quite nicely because you have tom baker being tom bakery and you've got Mary Tam playing two roles, and you have Peter Jeffrey just acting his ass off as Grendel. <laughs> yeah. And you even have, uh, what's his name, is the Archimandrite. Oh, God, and I'm forgetting his name now, but he was also in Tomb of the Cybermen and a few other Doctor stories, and he's awesome. They're, they've got very good actors in these roles. And yeah. the performances come along, and the ridiculous sword fight, and all of that craziness, <laughs> and the Scooby-Doo ending, all of it just carries you along quite nicely. It does seem like he captures Peter Jeffrey as Grendel quite well, though. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think Grendel comes off best of any of the characters, because Fisher seems like he's at least invested in making that character breathe a bit more. Yes. Mm-hmm. He actually, unintentionally maybe, but makes him a little less of a you know mustache-twirling villain and a little more of a character. Mm-hmm. Not that that's a bad thing necessarily, it just because of the kind of way that the actor played the role was very much in the in the tone of your mustache twirling scenery chewing (laughs) Mm old-fashioned kind of villain and giving him the the backstory the more character and a little more introspection i think we get the most introspection in this whole story out of out of grendel which is interesting i think makes him a little bit less of a quote-unquote villain he's still very much a bad dude (laughs) but (laughs) uh but yeah, it, 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 that out of all things might have made, that's a vast improvement in this version we're going to talk about 
things that improved is, is Grendel's characterization is, is certainly interesting. I'm not sure I'd want to see them take it this way on TV. I think it's fine as it is. I think it's as good as it's ever going to get. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think part of the reason why he does that too is that he's also beefing up the character Lamia because mm-hmm. I, I know last time we found her to be the most interesting character in the book and yet there was so little of her and there's unfortunately very little of her on screen too at least here we get some background for her and we get to realize exactly why it is that she's so taken with grendel so much so that when she does die as she's inevitably going to die he actually feels it and we don't quite feel it too but we come closer to it than (laughs) we would have before yeah so that might be another improvement that's there what else do we want to say about it um, I think he improved the, uh, like, I think I mentioned that earlier, actually, but the, the creature attack scene is actually played, um, well, you know, on the page it's going to play better no matter what, because if anyone's seen the TV version, it's it's <laughs> one of the more ridiculous moments. I think we talked about this at length last time, but oh, yeah. one of the more ridiculous monsters that we've seen on Doctor Who, and uh, you can get a chuckle out of it. It's 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 fun, but it's uh, certainly not something you could take very seriously or feel any fear or suspense in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Does it play out the same? Does he think that it that it's no? Okay, he so, doesn't think it's an android. Okay, that we don't have Excelsior. The, the cutoff word. Excelsior, <laughs> the cutoff word. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. think it's a fake. That's a nice new touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think having that at the beginning gets us kind of inside where this world is, and then adds a little suspense to that scene, which otherwise we're just like, oh no, Romana's being attacked by a monster, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> making her a damsel in distress yet one more time in the story. So. Yeah. Yes. And I have to give <laughs> Fisher credit for this, that he specifically is trying to have his cake and eat it too when it comes to her being the damsel in distress, because she may be the damsel in distress, but she damn well doesn't feel like it. Yeah. 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 That at one point she's thinking, well, I'm in prison right now, and that's not a good thing for a time lady to do. I need to get out of here. <laughs> and it's like, good, you you go, girl. And I think one of the issues that we had last time, in fact, it's an issue with the TV story. And they mentioned this in the afterward to this version, that both Dix and Fisher see it as an issue, that she is somehow kidnapped later in the story for a second time by Grendel while <laughs> they're trying to have their parlay. Yeah. And they each fix it in different ways. Fisher's fix seems to be a little more successful. Yeah, I agree with that. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This this fix actually is giving her something to do, you know, guard the back door, make sure no one's coming up from behind. <laughs> yeah, precisely. She's she's not an idiot. Yeah. She's not going to be an idiot like her own creator makes her in the next story where the doctor says there's a monster outside, get away from the windows. And she says, I just want to see. And the tentacle comes through. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <sighs> yeah. <Poor> um. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that makes it officially that we've had three different versions of how Romana gets re-kidnapped by Grendel in this. Uh, because it, <laughs> on TV, it plays a little differently. On TV, it's kind of unclear, I feel like I remember. And then, yeah, do we have yeah. the Terrence Dix version? We have the David Fisher version. So uh, at least Fisher gives her something to do. She's not just being, you know, a dingbat and getting grabbed. Exactly. What else do we like or dislike about this version well talking about the android animals i guess the mechanical animals made me think of there's a new game called horizon zero dawn oh yeah that you know is kind of post-apocalyptic but one of its big things is that there are animals in the wild that are mechanical that are basically these mechanical beasts that are are now the animals that exist in the wild Mm -hmm. and so i i kind of enjoyed seeing that aspect not only are there android people that have been used as the servants and and the lower class but there are also animals out in the wild being used to hunt but it also like made me wonder from like an ecological standpoint like how how does this world work yeah yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) well at least at least he thought of that right yeah 
that we don't get any of that in the televised version, and we don't get any of that in the Dix version, come to think of it. The only mechanical creatures in either of those two versions are the humans. So that's an interesting take. And I, I think I know why he did it, too. Because there is the bit where Grendel's men see K-9 coming towards the castle and they mistake him for a robot rabbit or something Mm -hmm. and say, nah, we don't want to shoot it. Besides, if someone wants to use the parts later, we don't want to damage it so that they can't resell them. And it's like, okay, that's not exactly a fix that needed to happen, but at least it's there. Yeah. If we're going to talk about things that I I did like, or at the very least appreciate about this version of the book, is that his world building is very good. And we don't get a whole lot of that in either other version, the television or the the original novelization. He gives us a lot of background on the Tara itself, on the society, on the history, and how the, you know there's a, a plague that caused the um, peasantry, who are the farmers and stuff, to die off while the aristocracy kind of walled themselves in and hid away from everything. So androids became a necessity to kind of replace field hands and such. And so we get really in-depth into how the history and how this all came to be, which is which is cool, and I I tip my hat to him for doing that. I'm not I, I'm still going to stick with at the end of the day that it doesn't really help this be any more enjoyable, mm-hmm. but I appreciate the effort and it's well thought out. Yeah, he's expanded on a lot of that, especially since it was in the original. I remember when we discussed the Dix version that I was surprised when that came up in the Dix version, and then I rewatched the the televised version and said oh it is there it's just it's lost because you're watching this visual joke of the android prince hitting his head against a stalactite (laughs) (laughs) you don't even realize and you lose all of that again because the performances are kind of uh, carrying it along and getting in the way of the backstory what little there is there's a lot more of it here and that's that's appreciated it's just it's not as successful as it is in Stones of Blood. It's more the type of backstory we got in Creature from the Pit where it's almost in the way of things. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. a tad bit. Though it is good. It is good to have it. Other things that we liked. I, I'm i just going over my notes now and realizing that this is one of the few Doctor Who books that I've ever seen mention of suicide, which is a bit ballsy. And the Doctor's story about the transvestite swordmaster, it's like, okay, that's that's new for a Doctor Who book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially one of the Target ones, right? So, yeah. <laughs> right. Would not have had that before. And that's a right. and, and that's name dropping a real person into this fictional book. That's a that was a real person that I had never heard of. And <laughs> so I did some reading up and it's like, oh that's fascinating. <laughs> so there's the the educational element <laughs> yes. yeah just a little bit like we had the um bullfighter last time who probably wasn't based on somebody new a real but yeah i'm not sure if it's possible to get even less of the character of till which i believe was totally cut out of the tv version is that correct and then um yeah just barely mentioned in the terence Dix book but i feel like we <laughs> In a place where he could have developed this a little more or done something with this character, he has sidelined that character yet again and totally... He's there for a moment here and there, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, which is fine. I mean... There's such a thing when we talk about doing literary analysis as a flat character, and that character is the very definition of a flat character. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's essentially like I get a very like an you know Igor from a, the Universal uh, monster movies kind of. Uh, yeah, he's kind of played but... that way on on screen, isn't he? Because he's yeah. basically just a hunchback or something. It's not even described that way so. in this version. No, we don't get much of anything. We get the name a couple times, so. Mm-hmm. so something he chose not to flesh out, for better or worse. I mean, I, I, it's fine, but yeah. just interesting. That... Well, Dalton earlier also mentioned that Robots of Death I, is mentioned in the events of Robots of Death appears mm-hmm. to be mentioned in this version. Yeah. So Fisher seems to be trying to tie this into the idea of androids being used and possibly not liking it as a result and then coming back to rebel or what have you 
And every once in a while that peeks through, there's a new sequence where Farah is saying, can we trust him? The servant or the doctor? The doctor, of course. Well, we can. And the, the android says, definitely. Oh, I was speaking to the swordmaster, your majesty. And both of them look doubtfully at him. And he says, you're thinking I would say that because the doctor programmed me, which of course is true, but it only made the two men even more suspicious. So there's that little bit of <laughs> the androids are a little smarter in this version than they previously were. And mm -hmm. he doesn't go quite far enough with it which is a shame. Yeah, I mean, you could always go, you know, as the show has in, in other occasions, but you could dive into androids and give them their own narrative here. They don't really have that. Uh, they're, they're, they seem to be very, uh, whatever whatever level they're functioning at, they seem to be very okay with the idea of being stand-ins for, <laughs> you know, yeah. real people or imitations of real people. And that there wasn't a, there's not a, a bit of rebelliousness in these androids. So mm -mm. they don't. Not yeah, a bit of it. No. Autonomy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the line, they're talking about how basically the, the androids, they're not that great. And the doctor says, George here is only being kept going by a combination of spit, sealing wax, and sheer good luck. Um, so like, yeah. the, these are very like basic androids, even though they're supposed to be able to fool people into thinking that they are someone else. But the doctor even mentions that something as small as putting a crown on the head could possibly make it stop working. <laughs> right. <laughs> if he bumps so the, too hard with the crown. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you have trouble believing that these could ever be used in the fields if they were yeah. trying to replace no. farmhands. Maybe those are a little more strong. The, the androids we get to spend time with are also androids built by the aristocracy, and and the and the doctor, whatever his skill is at this, I imagine he's kind of just doing what he does, and you know, even fixing his own tech in the TARDIS, and just kind of patching things together and making making do. So yeah, mm -hmm. but then on on the same token, we're told that they have these electrical electrified swords. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the amount and development of this technology is kind of all over the place. You know, the fact that they don't have explosives or anything of that type. But put, putting yeah. myself in this world where like androids exist, electrified swords exist, but you're still riding on horseback. <laughs> yeah, they don't have telephones. Yeah. They don't have television. Yeah. They don't have radio. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is a bit of a hodgepodge, and I think when we're talking about setting a story like this down on the page, that's bringing out those flaws even more. Mm -hmm. Which is true of any Doctor Who novelization, to be honest. But with something like this, even more so. Yeah, don't don't look yeah. at it too in depth. <laughs> yeah, I think if you wanted to read into it a lot, you could you could come up with a. A, a type of maybe it's a, a tad dystopian in society that like technology had reached a point and then there was this plague and you know the society kind of broke in half and you had this you know aristocracy and this peasantry that kind of died off same way like we carry tech around with us all the time laptops uh you know our cell phones or whatever none of us could probably build these from scratch maybe not none but few of us could build them from scratch yeah so I think you're looking at that type of situation where you have a group of people that can afford the technology, but they really have no idea how it functions. That's if you want to justify it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that would be an interesting story to tell, but Fisher just isn't interested in telling that story yeah. at all. Yeah. He's much more interested in talking about Zagreus, which is, as we're going to see from one of the reviews on Goodreads, is confusing to Doctor Who fans, especially if they are yeah. fans of the Big Finish audios, because that yeah. name has certain significance. And yes. telling the creation myth about the god named Kong... <laughs> I had forgotten about that piece. Yes, that was yeah. an interesting one. <laughs> That's the one I had problem with. It's like I can't get around the fact that their god is named Kong. Yeah, I just can't do it. Oh, god. he could have used a different name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I do have to admit that I kind of prefer this ending a bit to what we get on screen, which is just canine being stuck on the boat. <laughs> yeah, I much prefer Romana being asked by the doctor what's our going rate these days for saving planets and solving national crises and Romana says off the top of my head I couldn't say doctor but I do know we're not cheap <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like okay that's lovely that's lovely yeah. there are lots of 
lovely little bits, but the problem is they're lovely bits. Yes, they, agreed. They don't necessarily go into a cohesive whole in any way. I mean, the story of Theodora of the Golden Locks being drowned in brandy and then her corpse <laughs> going up in flames when the descendant lights a cigar too yes. close to her. I love that. I, I adore that. And I can't think of many other Doctor Who stories where a story like that could be told. But mm-hmm. it really is an aside. It doesn't really add much of anything except it adds to it. <laughs> There's yeah. more. Yeah. And that's it's... all it adds. Word count. It's all world building. Yeah, word count. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and word count, exactly. And that bit about the the article of clothing that's just a small fish with the note, poisonous, do not eat, wear. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you have to wonder where that fish goes. <laughs> Wrote a note about the anchovy clothing on the planet Zaguna, I guess was a, yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, like, it, it's, a, it's an interesting aside. It's It's kind of like he's going for something a little Douglas Adams and doesn't quite get there but yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's what that reminded me of so (laughs) i think that's why we appreciated the revision of stones of blood much more than we appreciate this one because in stones of blood he wasn't trying so hard to do a douglas adams Mm -hmm. whereas here it feels like he's kind of veering into that territory again in the way that he did with creature from the pit Mm -hmm. and in a way that he may do a little bit with leisure hive coming up because that's uh, that's got a few elements of it too but it's not going to feel quite as overblown as this curiously enough i've heard the audiobook of uh, that he did the newer audiobook he did of the leisure hive and it does have some of the same issues but it does aid the narrative maybe a little more than here but it's it's excessive in leisure hive like it it gets far away from the same thing it does here it gets far away from the core story at times but now, did he completely rewrite Leisure Hive for audio as well? I've not read the the Target novel, so I would guess just by listening to it and the length of the story that it's definitely been flushed out. And there's a lot of similarities to here where, you know, he's just going into these stories about, um, is it Argolis? Is that the planet on yep. Leisure Hive? Um, it, it just this really rich and kind of fascinating history of Argolis, but it starts to be distracting and it's the exact same problem i have with this one although i do think i liked leisure hive a little better but (laughs) Hmm. yeah i'm i'm looking that up right now and he wrote the book in 82 and according to wikipedia the audiobook came out in 2013 which would have been right around the same time that he did the other audiobooks so yeah, it could very well be he rewrote that too, but he wouldn't necessarily need to rewrite that one. If that's the case, what you probably heard was indeed the audio version of the original Target novel, but I will do research before we do that next time and make sure of that because I'm not absolutely certain about it. Not sure what else to say about this, to be honest. <laughs> There's a, a nice bit of prose if, to pull out one, like, and, and, and David Fisher's got some some great prose here, actually. Like, it uh, doesn't always serve it perfectly, but there's a bit, thing, but kind of some introspection from the Doctor's character here saying, but then he found a lot of politics incomprehensible or at best unsavory. It was, he reflected, the only profession for which no preparation was ever thought necessary. And I thought that was kind of cool. So, <laughs> yes. kind of a good piece of... <laughs> yes, and to think that Fisher was writing that in 2011 rather than in yeah. 2016 when we all know that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Has some foresight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just a little bit. <laughs> All right. Anything else we want to say about this one? Every time I think about the Archimandroid, I just think of the priest from, I can't remember which movie it is, but where he says, Mowage. <laughs> oh, it's uh, that's the, uh, is that Princess Bride? Princess that... Bride, yes. I think that's yeah. it. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, then love, true love, will follow you forever. The treasure, your one. Skip to the end. Have you the wind? 
So yep. that's I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think of that when I think of the Arkham Android, just you know, kind of being dragged around to marry these people to do these coronations. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he at least gives that character, if not character development, then at least a little reason for being. Because it really is a thankless role. It's Cyril Shapps. That's the actor's name that I was trying to think of earlier. And Cyril Shapps is basically just there, even though he's a much better actor than that part really requires. It's a good expansion on just his reason for being in this version. Mm -hmm. Anything else we'd like to say? Two super quick ones. David Fisher gave us a little bit of an aside that gave us the history of the fourth Doctor's scarf, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which, honestly, like after he gave us the little blurb, I was like, hey, wait, I kind of want to hear more about that. But Mm -hmm. and had a great description of K9, which I'd never heard used before as uh, described him as a terrier sized computer. So (laughs) A good one. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit bigger than that, I would think. But yeah, he is. But yeah, <laughs> certainly heavier than a terrier, I would think. <laughs> uh, speaking of canine, I did notice that in the past we've had canine growling or whatever. Mm-hmm. David Fisher did a good job of actually kind of describing the sounds that canine would make instead of just being like, "Oh, he growled" or "he barked." <laughs> he described it as a sound that a robot dog would make. <laughs> so to, right. to kind of fix that <laughs> right yeah yeah i don't remember whether it was this one described it had a lot of those like bark and growl sounds uh-huh. from canine and we've never heard canine make anything that sounds like a literal bark or growl so it's kind of an odd choice but actually yeah. i think you're thinking about this book from the last am time. i am yeah. i yeah, yeah. because I, be. yeah. I was re-listening to our discussion last time and you pointed that out last time that you didn't remember <laughs> canine ever growling he does yeah. growl on screen to my knowledge exactly once and that's when the doctor manages to throw the TARDIS into a spin so that he can mess up the chessboard because he's losing the game. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And canine growls at him because of it. Yeah. Well, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book out of five stars on Goodreads is a solid four, but it's based on nine ratings. So I'm saying that as a caveat. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis gives this two stars, and he starts with the poem from the Zagreus. Big Finish <laughs> audio, Zagreus sits inside your head, Zagreus lives among the dead, Zagreus sees you in your bed and eats you when you're plagiarizing. <laughs> oh. Okay, that's a little unfair. Fisher almost certainly got the name he used as Grendel's first name from Greek mythology, which is presumably where Gary Russell and Alan Barnes found it when they wrote the big Finnish story of that name to commemorate the Doctor Who's 40th anniversary about nine years earlier. Still, it jars seeing it. I initially thought it was a huge publishing error. It certainly interrupted my reading. Yeah, same thing for me with Kong. Not that I was enjoying this book. I've seen or read so many versions of The Prisoner of Zenda that watching or reading the story is very predictable, so I need a fair bit of time between viewings and readings for me to sustain interest, and we only read the Terrence Dix version a few months ago. Fisher seems to have had trouble staying interested in the story too, as he appears to have forgotten its pastiche of The Prisoner of Zenda and suddenly started describing swordmasters as musketeers. I'm not sure if the Terrans even had muskets but any projectile weapon would have been thought fit only for peasants. Yeah, that's actually a point. I didn't like this book at all. It was, I think, worse for following Stones of Blood, but I would have struggled to like it if I'd read it after Pescatons. Ooh. Uh, uh, Oh, that's saying something. Calling them musketeers reminds me that he did call them samurai at some point, too. Well, weird thing is, I actually did some research on that. Musketeers is a wrong usage, Samurai, the way he's described them here, would actually be accurate. Okay. 
which is just strange, I know, but if samurai are the uh, retainers of landed gentry, then mm. that's accurate. Yeah. It's it's not the way we understand the word samurai these days, but yeah, it's, it's just yeah. about right. But Musketeer is absolutely wrong. <laughs> Mark gives it three stars and says, With this idea of a swashbuckling adventure in mind, I found the entrance of Tara to have a much jauntier style than the Stones of Blood. The whole story is suffused with a general sense of amusement, which leads to dialogue that feels like something from the Douglas Adams era. This is entertaining. Although the downside of this is that at no real point is there a sense of true malice. Although the aristocracy are as mean, nasty, and vindictive as you could get, even the point that Grachtian nobles wall up their wives to die when they tire of them is given with a certain glee. This is not a Doctor Who tale to be taken too seriously. As a romp, though, it's great fun. The Doctor and Romana almost bounce their way through the plot, with Romana being not just a female Time Lord, but the doppelganger of another character as well. Similarly, as Tom Baker's Doctor usually did, his Doctor always has a quip or a humorous rebuke close to hand, which again feels very much like the television character. In short, this is a livelier tale of the fourth Doctor that is pleasingly different from the more serious tone of the previous. Reading them back-to-back, -back, as I guess I would have seen them on television in the 1970s, this novel shows how the series could be mercurial in its manner and broaden its variety. Yeah, I guess so. This novelization reflects that, that admirably and is another crackingly entertaining and graciously short read. Well, it's definitely short. <laughs> and yeah. finally, speaking of short, Travis did not give it a rating and says, Fun romp that borrows, shall we say, quite heavily from the Prisoner of Zenda, but adds androids and lasers. Witty time wasters set in the middle of the Key to Time saga. Everyone in the TARDIS crew gets to do something. Not much. Count Grendel is a worthy bad guy. Well, and Tara is a planet worth visiting. Well, I'm not sure about that either. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I would give this one a three. I think that David Fisher's writing, it's not boring, it's not bad writing. I just, I don't really like the story, and that's not his fault. We already talked about a lot of the asides are, are fun. He's trying to add something to a story that doesn't have a whole lot going on for it, you know, in my opinion. But I don't remember what I gave the Terrence Dix version, but I enjoyed this one more than that. So hopefully a three is better than what I gave Terrence Dix. Yeah, I'm almost certain you didn't give him a three. <laughs> I know I didn't. Uh, Eric, out of five stars, what would you give this? Um, I'm going to agree with Dalton. I think it's a, it's a three. It's it's very readable. Compared to the Dix uh, novel, this is much more fun. And I like what Travis called it a witty time waster. I think that's a good uh, a good description <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's readable. It's it's brief. And it's, it's not going to really get on your nerves. But I agree with Dalton 100%. It's just that I don't don't really care for the story i don't think and and the tv show did something to help or did something whatever it did its biggest success is to make you not notice how dull this story is so and as for me i'll also go with a three i originally gave this i believe a 2.25 the dicks version and i think that was almost entirely because the story just doesn't have much buoying it up this time it's all kind of held together with um spit and bailing wire whatever the phrase was don't <laughs> it's but the bailing wire is all those asides and i really love those asides i honestly do they're not nearly as intrusive for me as his footnotes in creature from the pit were mm -hmm. That being said, he does something with this version, and it's even mentioned in the afterword that he was encouraged by the editor to do this. He does a lot more reported dialogue in this version than he did in Stones of Blood. In Stones of Blood, we get a lot more of just the straightforward dialogue, whereas here we're told what people say. And we also lose that lovely line, if you don't stop burning my scarf, you're going to have to kill me. <laughs> 
it's completely <laughs> gone here and it's just a generic threat which is a shame but it's still better than the dicks version because dicks really didn't care about this story at all and nor do we all that much it's a fun romp i'm not sure i would go so far as to borrow dalton's old phrase and say it's a quick read and a fun read <laughs> but it was, it was at least quick i got through it in a day yes and mm-hmm. so that's that's better so thank you all mm-hmm. and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time Eric, where can we find your podcasts? You can find it pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for it and can't find it, look us up on our Facebook page, Police Box in the Junkyard, or on Twitter at Police Box Pod. Shoot me a message. We'll figure out a way to get you subscribed. Appreciate you having me, and always a good time. Awesome. Thank you for coming back. Next time, we're finally going to get going on Tom Baker's last season as the Doctor with yet another David Fisher book, the last one we will ever be doing by this author, which is, you know, somewhat bittersweet, The Leisure Hive. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word don't do spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.